I'm Jamil Smith, Senior Editor at the New Republic, and this is Intersection. It's Black History Month, people. But rather than staging a church play or singing We Shall Overcome, like we used to do when I was growing up, we're going to look at racism today from a couple different angles. We're tackling two topics today, both dealing with blackness, but on the surface, quite different. Later in the show, we're going to look at white terrorism and racist violence committed in the name of protecting white women. We're going to look at the history of this and current examples, like last summer's Charleston Church Massacre. But first, I want us to turn to the city of Flint, Michigan. Now, Flint is a former auto manufacturing hub and home to 100,000 people, the majority of whom are black. It's in the middle of a crisis over its contaminated water supply, a crisis that's finally attracting nationwide attention. A little background. In 2011, Flint was in a financial crisis. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, a Republican, came in and put the city under the control of emergency managers. To save money, the managers decided that Flint should start getting its water from the Flint River rather than Lake Huron. But the Flint River water was contaminated, and now thousands of people are very sick. And here's the thing. The government knew that the river water was polluted and that lead was seeping in from the pipes. There's also speculation that since June, more than 80 cases of Legionnaire's disease are related to the contaminated water. Fourteen months ago, Snyder's government said the water was good to drink. Now, not so much. Snyder declared a state of emergency and got money from the federal government, but damage is still being done. To talk through the causes of the water crisis with me is my colleague, Rebecca Lieber, a New Republic staff writer in D.C. who covers the environment. She recently wrote a great article on the federal government's role in the Flint contamination crisis that I'm excited to hear her talk about. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Flint's water crisis started with decisions from the city and state governments. Could the federal government have done anything to avoid the disaster that occurred? So the debate over who bears more responsibility for Flint has come down to who had what responsibility to oversee water quality. And that's a dual role. The state has certain guidelines for how it carries out its water oversight, and the EPA's job is to enforce it. And there was a breakdown very early along the way here, and that has now resulted in all this finger pointing over who's to take most of the blame. The EPA were communicating with Michigan officials over how they were testing Flint's water quality and how they treated it with chemicals to prevent corrosion. And there was a disagreement between the state and EPA over what state officials had to do. I was in Flint for a New Republic climate change panel in early December. And one of the things we talked about there was when we talk about environmental issues at all, it's only ever seemingly in the context of climate change. Obviously, this is an environmental issue that's completely separate from that. What do you think of that? Do you feel like too often we just kind of focus environmental discussions around one area, not necessarily environmental racism or environmental justice? It's a really good question. And I think the the real problem is that we don't always connect how these issues actually lead into each other. So how climate change is a is a racial justice issue and how water quality and the GOP's fight to cut regulations and to undercut the EPA's powers and that affects marginal communities as well and we don't usually draw that that uh, full circle of how the fight against the EPA at the state level really links back to hurting poor communities, communities like Flint, where 40 percent of the population is below the poverty line and is predominantly black. It just seems like, especially with the emails that uh, Governor Snyder released 
just reading those and your assessment of those, it seems like, you know, there's just maybe not just sort of like an intentional racism here, but intent is so often I feel like given as like the only motivation of actually whether or not there actually was racism. Like if there wasn't any intent, then it actually wasn't racist. No, I mean, this kind of negligence, this kind of like just, oh, they're, you know, they're just complaining and such and so. Do you feel like the term environmental racism even applies to the situation? Yeah, it's fair to to talk about this in terms of environmental racism. African-Americans are twice as likely as non-Hispanic whites to live with poor water quality. Mm. And that is an issue that stems back decades, not just in the last few years with Flint. And it affects cities across America. And in Snyder's administration's response to Flint, they often undermined uh, locals' own concerns over their own water quality, where they insisted things were not right. It didn't look right. And there were preliminary results showing that they had high lead in their water. But Snyder's officials in the Department of Environmental Quality, they talked about in these recently released emails, the anti-everything group that wanted to make a political issue out of this. Who were they referring to? They were probably referring to the the people who were the first whistleblowers on this and concerned parents and scientists and environmental groups, including this EPA official in the Michigan Region 5 area for the EPA that raised the initial red flags that Flint had high level of lead in its water. The Snyder administration dismissed those concerns. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the politics of this. I mean, Bernie Sanders has called for Snyder's resignation and his opponent, Hillary Clinton, at the end of the last Democratic debate, said this about Flint unprompted. I spent a lot of time last week being outraged by what's happening in Flint, Michigan. And I think every single American should be outraged. We've had a city in the United States of America where the population, which is poor in many ways, and majority African-American, has been drinking and bathing in lead-contaminated water. And the governor of that state acted as though he didn't really care. He had requests for help that he basically stonewalled. I'll tell you what, if the kids in a rich suburb of Detroit had been drinking contaminated water and being bathed in it, there would have been action. So I sent my top campaign aide down there to talk to the uh, mayor of Flint to see what I could do to help. And I issued a statement about what we needed to do. And then I went on a TV show and I said it was outrageous that the governor hadn't acted. And within two hours, he had. So, I mean, we're not going to necessarily ask you to compare which campaign is doing more to help Flint or what have you. I know the Flint mayor has uh, openly thanked Hillary Clinton for sending those staffers to the town. But now it's obviously a presidential issue. How do you see this playing out uh, politically? I think, unfortunately, when you're talking about the 2016 presidential campaign, this has not gotten enough attention. We did not see it posed as a question in any of the recent debates. Clinton, that clip you, you just played, brought that up on her own. As far as the impacts, uh, the the potential consequences for Snyder and his appointees, uh, we're still seeing that play out. He has been facing a lot of demands that he resign. And we've seen some fallout at the EPA, too, where there's been some resignations. Now, on the Republican side, you have Jeb Bush echoing his brother's heck of a job brownie moment when he said this on CNN last week about Snyder's leadership. I admire Rick Snyder for stepping up right now. 
he's going to the challenge, uh, and he's fired people and accepted responsibility to, to fix this. This is going to be a long-term challenge. But it does point out that we're, we have a 20th century regulatory system on a 21st century world. Someone needs to change how we go about Washington's mm-hmm. role in this, where there's more accountability and more transparency so that when reports are done, they're thoroughly vetted. You don't, you know, you, you don't need an insular regulatory agencies that are blaming each other. I'm That's what su- happened in this case, and it's just wrong. I'm kind of surprised you're praising Governor Snyder. Um, I, I understand you're talking about his actions now, but a lot of people are faulting his yeah. administration for the last two years. No, I, look, I am too. No, I, I, what I'm saying, though, instead of saying the dog ate my homework, it's someone else's fault, once it became clear, he took, he's, he's taken the lead now, and that's exactly what I think leaders have to do. All right. So Snyder came in with this Tea Party election wave in 2010. Rebecca, do you feel like this is a Republican problem as much as it is a Michigan problem, especially given the EPA's culpability in this? It's some kind of twisted logic for a candidate to argue that the solution to this kind of problem is to give states even more power to not regulate right. the water, essentially, while uh, basically you remove, as as faulty as the EPA was in this, this process, you just remove that entire extra layer that is now requiring Michigan to set higher standards and to help Flint. Uh, Jeb Bush essentially is arguing that we return more of that power to states and because Snyder acted so, so heroically in this. And I, I disagree with that. I feel like Flint is sort of the canary in the coal mine in this regard. I mean, I think you brought that up. It is not the only place where this is happening or could happen. Scientists say there is no safe level of lead in water. So you see this at, in much a much quieter way that doesn't get this kind of national attention, but it is affecting minority communities and poor communities. Rebecca, thanks for joining me. It was good to have you on. Thank you. What is happening in Flint now is its own type of violence. You see the rashes that are developing on people's skin, the lifetime damage it's doing to people's cognitive abilities. But I've also been thinking about a different kind of violence, one that we're a lot more familiar with. That debate clip you heard earlier from Hillary Clinton, that debate took place in South Carolina, not that far from where a young white terrorist murdered nine people at a church in Charleston last June. We remember the what of the attack. We'll never forget that. But do you remember the why? A surviving witness said that the shooter told them, quote, you rape our women and you're taking over our country. That sounds a lot like the justification for countless murders of black people throughout American history, Emmett Till included. Why is protecting this idea of the sanctity of white women such a common justification for white men to commit acts of racist violence? Here with me in the studio is my friend Chloe Angel, a senior editor at the Huffington Post and formerly a frequent contributor to the New Republic. She wrote a column for us shortly after Charleston entitled, quote, I don't want to be an excuse for racist violence anymore. Chloe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And joining us from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is Lisa Lindquist-Dorr. She's an associate dean at the University of Alabama and a professor of Southern and women's history. Great to have you on, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Lisa, let me start with you. You wrote a book on this topic, White Women, Rape, and the Power of Race in Virginia from 1900 to 1960. You'd think that racist acts in an overtly and structurally racist America would need no justification. But why have white women been traditionally used as scapegoats for it? Well, I think it's important to uh, put a chronology on this, because I think oftentimes people will say this has been a timeless 
way that white women have been used rhetorically. But it actually has a history. Everything has a history. This fear of black men raping white women is something that really only developed after the Civil War and even after Reconstruction. And it came to a head at a point in which there were troubles in the American economy, there were political upheavals with the populist movement, and it was a point at which there are considerable struggles over access to power and resources in American society. And I think it's no accident that Southerners began to talk about the dangers of black men at the same time that black men were struggling to achieve political power, economic power, and independence, and at the same time that women were beginning to talk about their own rights as well. Now let's bring it to present day. Chloe, can you tell us what you were expressing in your column and why you felt compelled to write it? I felt compelled to write it because of the words that Dylan Roof himself spoke right before he shot those African-American people. And in the midst of that mourning and that grieving and that shock about the slaughter of black life, I really didn't want to lose sight of the justification that he gave for that slaughter. What he said was, you rape our women and you're taking over our country. And by our women, he presumably meant white women. And I really, I, I didn't want to lose sight of the justification that he was that he was playing over in his head, that he was offering uh, for these acts of violence that he was carrying out. Because as Lisa so rightly points out, they have a long history and they are clearly not over yet. How does this, um, this stereotype or this, this tendency to ascribe you know, the, the blame for violence on black male threats to white womanhood, how does this reflect in our pop culture as well? Well, white womanhood is routinely and I would say almost always centered in popular culture as the highest version of womanhood. Um, if, if you're not going to be a white man in America, the best next thing to be is a white woman. Um, and white women are simultaneously every woman heroes, uh, the, the, the sort of stand in for all womanhood and also um, held up as status objects uh, for men to have and possess and have sex with. But I think it's worth noting that one of the most beloved books in all of American history centers on the false rape allegations made by a white woman against a black man, and then the false conviction and extrajudicial killing, also attempted lynching of that black man. I'm talking, of course, about To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think it's worth noting that that book is set in the 20th century. It's not set back in our ancient history. It's set in the 1930s, less than 100 years ago. Right. That's the height in some ways, the height of this fear. Um, it really is something that reaches a crescendo between the 1890s and the 1930s. And then as lynching ebbs, it, it loses its currency, I think. And I think especially once women claim agency of their own, um, they say we are not trophies to be passed between men. It loses some of its currency. So I was in some ways surprised to hear Dylan Roof say that. I was like, wow, I didn't think people articulated that anymore. But I also think it represented his sense of losing power in the society, a society in which average middle-class white guys don't have the power they used to have. I, I think it's it's worth noting that they don't, you're absolutely right that people don't, at least in polite company, articulate that anymore. And instead it is implied and, and spoken in dog whistles. I was thinking about the uproar about sanctuary cities 
that right. really blew up last summer after a young white woman was murdered by by a Latino man. Um, all the comments that Donald Trump made about how Mexican immigrants coming across the border are rapists. And, the, the re- and actually, we have that comment, actually, so we, everybody knows what we're talking Why about. Why listen to me when you can listen to Donald Trump? When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Right. Of course. <laughs> and and the, the reason that he said that is the reason he wants Americans, white Americans, to be worried about that is that he's not worried about the Latino women who might get raped by those hypothetical rapists coming across the border. He doesn't care that 80 percent of women crossing the border experience sexual violence as they cross. He's, he's evoking fear in white men about the sanctity and safety of white womanhood. Now, I mean, we also have to think about how the contemporary patriarchal attitudes and fears concerning white womanhood play into this as well. Uh, Lisa, can you speak to that a little bit? I think that a world in which white men are supposed to protect white women is a world in which women are supposed to be dependent on men. And it does serve to keep them under control as well. But I also think it's, it's important to remember that white women have abused that power as well, that, that place in, in, the, in the raced hierarchy. And I think we have such a tendency, especially in the States, to think in dichotomies. You know, you're black or you're white, you're a Democrat or you're or a Republican, you're a victim of oppression or you're a perpetrator. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to get outside of that dichotomous thinking, which we do at, inter- you do at intersection. But it's important to remember that just because white women are victims of sexist oppression, does not preclude them from being perpetrators of racist oppression. Right. No, but I think it also means that these communities were enormously complex. Yes. And that these things are always, as you say, intersecting. Um, I would say, yes, there were women who abused it. There were also women who were raped, too, by mm-hmm. black men. Absolutely. Raped. And so in some ways, um, the rhetoric to me is about power. And it is a kind of power that people claim access to to serve their own purposes. And uh, as you said, you know, to to serve whatever political need they happen to have that day. I'm thinking specifically of Ted Cruz uh, fabricating statistics about what happened in in my in in my homeland of Australia after gun laws were changed, after gun laws were were tightened, and he he was you know sowing this fear that sexual violence went through the roof because women couldn't... Women in Australia didn't have their American Second Amendment rights. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, um, right. And that, and that always works so well. Right. Yes, um, yes. Perfect, proper remedy for rape culture. But, but, it's, but, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's worth noting, I think, that these are often instances in which men who don't otherwise seem to care, or at least in their actions, don't... don't uh, seem to prioritize preventing sexual violence suddenly become very concerned um, when there is some other form of power loss on the table. Well, if you look in the past at how they, how did they enact their protection, it was by lynching men after the so-called assault. They did very little to protect women if they were concerned about that instead. I mean, the insult, it seems to me, was not necessarily on white women per se, but on whiteness. And, you know, the fact that women are put up as to be, this, you know, there's some kind of uh, paragon of whiteness or there's some kind of, you know, symbol for purity. And then somehow they're being violated. That physical act is representative or the fear of that physical act is, is represented as a, you know, a, a pollution of whiteness. Well, symbol of purity, 
symbols of purity who are also not to be trusted with their own bodies. I mean, I think underneath a lot of the purported fear about sexual violence is a, 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 a yet another layer of fear about sexual consent, about white women's sexual attraction to black men and how completely disruptive that would be to a gender-segregated society um, and how incredibly threatening that is to, to white men. Yeah. Right. And, I, and I think that protection was always contingent. And it was even contingent, I found cases, after the fact, that they would go back after a black man had been convicted of assaulting a white woman, and they'd say, well, she's turned out to be not so great. She's, she, she runs a whorehouse or something. Let's, let's let him out. I mean, it also seems like the fears of biracial children, of quote-unquote miscegenation, is at the heart of this. Lisa, it wasn't so much a problem when masters were raping enslaved women, of course, but it's an issue when Emmett Till allegedly whistles at a white woman. I think whites were always most comfortable with a color line that was very clear. Um, and slavery made it clear um, that the mixed-race children of white owners and slave, enslaved women stayed in the black community. They were black. And yet when you no longer have that neat system of racial classification, it all becomes much more difficult. What frustrates me about the justification of the rape of white women or the endangerment of white women is that it simultaneously turns us into scapegoats and into objects. And it completely ignores the statistical fact that, like other violent crimes, rape is far more likely to be intra-racial than interracial, which means that as a white woman living in the United States, which is still far more segregated than we realize or admit, I am far more likely to be raped by a fellow white person, by a white man, than I am to be raped by a person of another race. Now, Lisa, over the new year in Germany, in Cologne and Dusseldorf and other towns, Hundreds of women reported being harassed by men on the street, immigrant men from North Africa in particular. Uh, it's led to the rise of these civilian vigilante groups who say that their goal is to patrol the streets to protect, quote, our women. Now, it's turning out that a lot of this is a lot more bluster than action, but the whole concept of it has eerie similarities to exactly what you guys have been talking about, the vigilante justice of the American South in the 1900s. Well, I see the problems with any kind of vigilante violence is that they're, they're not really, they're neither effective nor accurate in, in who they're targeting. Nevertheless, I think it is not the business of private citizens to be judge and jury and potentially executioner of, of crimes that are, are, are illegal, that, that are crimes that we as a society have already said are beyond the pale. Again, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the strategic, selective um, – am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, you are. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the strategic, selective giving a shit about yeah. sexual violence um, when the victims are people in whom we have a political interest or the perpetrators are people in, in whom we have in, – in whose persecution we have a political interest. So in this case, it's, you know, black and brown men. And, you know, I, I would love to see – people on the right, both in the States and in Europe, be as steadfastly and sincerely committed to the eradication of sexual violence in all other situations as they seem to be in this one. And just for some unknown reason, I doubt we're going to get to see that happen. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, we, we see some of those same themes, though, right now in our politics, especially on the right, that, you know, there's a certain purity that they're trying to restore and make America great again. And what, what does great mean? I mean, to me, I hear that and I think whiter. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, there's a certain, you know, quote unquote, purification that they or they're seeking to enforce. Well, I think certainly it, it's as American as apple pie that Americans have been dividing themselves into those of us who are true Americans and everybody else mm -hmm. 
I think what is also American is that over time, groups become accepted. But I think there is always that tension, especially when it comes to a struggle over resources. And and that desire to look back to an America that was, or the, the way that Stephanie Kuntz described it, the way we never were, um, that, that desire to right. look back to a, a better, whiter, more stable America that just makes more sense because it's what I think I remember from my childhood, that's not limited to politics. You see, you've seen a huge rash of that in pop culture in the last 10 years of, of nostalgic pop culture, Mad Men being you know, one, of the, one of the most obvious examples. I can't tell you how many Gatsby parties I was invited to the year that The Great Gatsby <laughs> came out. And I just remember thinking, let's leave aside the the socioeconomic discomfort of holding a, a Gatsby party in the middle of our new Gilded Age here in Manhattan. Uh, will you be inviting black people to your Gatsby party? Mm-hmm. Um, will women be allowed to use birth control at your Gatsby party? Like <laughs> there the, weren't this, too many of us in the movie. Like so. this, <laughs> the, the, this, the nostalgic looking back uh, to an America in which many of us would not have been able to fully participate is is not limited to to politics. And I, but I think the fact that it's playing out so effectively in politics is in part because it's in the water right now. Everything is magnified in this this environment, the media environment that we're in. And I think we all forget, going back to the Mad Men conversation, yeah, it looked like it would be really nice to be an upper-class white guy in the 1950s, but most of us would not have been that. Yeah. I look at Mad Men and I see, I see the secretary, the black secretaries, I see the black porters, and I think about those lives. I think about the lives of my grandparents and my parents in that same age. And, and I, I, I mean, as much as I enjoyed the program for what it was and I enjoy these kind of nostalgic lookbacks for what they are, I do have to contextualize myself, you know, and also as a man, I think about, you know, black women in those spaces as well. So, and, well, and you know, looking at the white women in those shows, looking at what they go through and... Oh, Betty, oh, her life is awful. Yeah, well, and it's also this very clear illustration of something that, you know, that should remain obvious to us in 2016, but doesn't always, which is that being the victim of oppression should create empathy. It should greater enable white women in particular to empathize with people who are the the targets of other of sexist oppression with all other forms of oppression laid on top of it. And unfortunately, it often doesn't work that way. It historically never has. And instead, what it prompts a lot of us to do is to hold on to and exercise and abuse what little scraps of power we have. Right, And never look at those above us who are manipulating the system, who are creating a lot of the rhetoric who are really holding a disproportionate share of the, the cards. Right, which for, you know, for everything that is that has been said and written about the purported sequel of To Kill a Mockingbird, I do think that book is so instructive for how it lays out how those, for, ch- for children, it lays out for American high school children, how, and Australian, I, I read it in year nine in Australia, um, how those uh, power dynamics play out when you have class and ability and geography and, and race and gender, all at that intersection, all interplaying, this is what happens. What strikes me about that too is I am sure that that novel was incredibly instructive to whites and didn't tell African-Americans anything they didn't already. Right. Sort of like that Macklemore white privilege song that just came out. Anyway. <laughs> well, and, and, and another more contemporary example of that, I think, is, is 12 Years a Slave and the white plantation owner's wife in that movie and how she is arguably the most terrifying villain in that entire movie. And I think it hadn't occurred to a lot of white viewers until they watched that movie that white women were not merely 
victims and, and targets of, of sexist limitations in those times, they were also perpetrators of, of racist oppression. And, and that movie makes it very stark and very clear and completely unavoidable in a way that, again, I don't think was news to a lot of black viewers, but was certainly news to a lot of white ones, particularly the women. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, both of you, Chloe and Lisa, for joining us and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Next, more on a civil rights freedom fighter and journalist who is calling out this justification for racist crimes before my grandparents were born. A few weeks ago, I attended the greatest Martin Luther King Day event I've ever been to at the Riverside Church here in New York City. The MC was Ryan Coogler, the director of the movies Fruitvale Station and Creed, both of which should have been nominated for Oscars, but I'll leave that alone. At the event, though, famous actors performed a series of speeches by civil rights leaders. There was Chris Rock as James Baldwin, Michael B. Jordan as Fred Hampton, Harry Belafonte as Patrice Lumumba, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Octavia Spencer as Dr. King. It was unforgettable. And I want to share with you one of the speeches that I'd never heard before. It's called This Awful Slaughter by journalist and anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells. She delivered it in 1909 at the NAACP's first conference. Here's a section of the speech performed by actress Adapero Oduye, star of the brilliant film Pariah. Why is mob murder permitted by a Christian nation? What is the cause of this awful slaughter? The question is answered almost daily. Always the same shameless falsehood that Negroes are lynched to protect womanhood. Standing before a Chautauqua ensemblage, John Temple Graves, at once champion of lynching and apologist for lynchers, said the mob stands today as the most potential bulwark between the women of the South in such a carnival of crime as would infuriate the world and precipitate the annihilation of the Negro race. This is the never-varying answer of lynchers and their apologists. All know it is untrue. Here to talk with me more about Wells' activism is Blair Kelly, a history professor at North Carolina State University. She focuses her research on African-American social movements and is calling in from North Carolina. Hey, Blair. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jamil. Glad to be here. Blair, you mentioned Wells in your book, Right to Ride and Streetcar Boycotts and African-American Citizenship, in the era of Plessy v. Ferguson. Can you first tell me more about her and how you discussed her in your book? Well, Ida B. Wells is my favorite historical figure. She was an activist, a journalist, really kind of a legendary figure, a woman before her times in many ways. And Wells is a young woman riding on trains in Tennessee back and forth from taking care of her siblings after her parents' death and getting to her job. So sort of a very modern stance for this young black woman, uh, newly educated, excited about the possibilities for her future. And she meets this wave of segregation 
that suddenly is hitting Black Southerners who are moving around and seeking mobility in post-Reconstruction South. She's on a train. She's purchased a first-class ticket. She is attacked by a conductor who tries to remove her from the first-class ladies' car of the train and put her in a second-class smoking car where they are suddenly deciding that Black people have to sit. The problem that she really brings to the fore in this instance is she is a lady, right? She's educated. She's beautifully dressed. For whom should this car be, if not for Ida B. Wells? And so the problem of segregation is an interesting one when black women encounter it in this moment in the 1870s and 1880s. She's, she's one of many black women who are encountering this and suing for their rights on the train. So they grab Ida B. Wells, um, pull her from her seat. She bites the conductor's hand and she tries to stay in her seat. So she's not thrown off. She's thinking here of Frederick Douglass. She's thinking here of other black women from her community who who fought for their seats. She sues the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad first successfully in the lower court. Uh, her case is then later thrown out by the state court. But in doing so, I think this is her, a formative experience for her in thinking about race and thinking about gender and how it's constructed in the American South at that time. And so it becomes an important moment when she moves on to become an anti-lynching advocate. Blair, when Wells was advocating against the lynch law in 1893, she wrote, quote, the husbands, fathers, and brothers of those white women were away for four years. The Civil War, of course, is what she's referring to, fighting to keep the Negro in slavery. Yet not one case of assault has ever been reported. And I argued in our earlier conversation in this podcast that the white man's supposed fear for white women wasn't about rape at all, but more about so-called miscegenation or just whiteness, period. Do you agree with that? It's not about miscegenation because miscegenation is going on all through throughout this here history, right? right? And it is uh, black women and the word miscegenation, I mean my That's wow, why I said you know, so-called. Great. <laughs> it's going on because there are black women who are being subject to relationships with white men throughout this history. Some of the most famous and successful White men of the time period have parallel black families. Um, Alex Manley of North Carolina, he's the son of a white governor who kept a white family and a black family. So there's there's tons of miscegenation. It just isn't going the other way, right? And so the, the sexual threat, you know, that gets brought up uh, that Wells sees firsthand in her own community is against three men who opened a successful grocery store. They hadn't raped anybody. They were um, providing economic competition for a white grocery store that wanted their customers. And so that was the problem. It was it was black success. It was black independence. It was black um, freedom. That was the problem that made lynching, the terror of lynching and, and, and the ongoing terrorism of lynching necessary. This awful slaughter. Let's go back to the speech for a second. I was struck just by, you know, the similarities of what, Ida B. Wells was talking about in that speech as to what we're seeing today. I want to talk a little with you a little bit about Charleston. And it's part of the things that, that sort of inspired this uh, thinking in my mind to, to talk about this in this episode. Given the justification that the shooter, the terrorist in that incident gave, I mean, do you feel like that's being exacerbated, like that encouraged at all by our politics, by, you know, some sort of like cultural mood? I just love to get your perspective on why you feel like this this justification has lived on so long? It was really a, a astounding to me for that man to enter into such a historic African-American 
um, space, a space of resistance, a space uh, that has a history of resistance on behalf of black folk to attack black women in the name of protecting white women was just extraordinarily an odd moment for him to sort of pull back this history. But I think the the language and the residue of white supremacy in this time period isn't gone from us as much as we'd like to think it is. And I, I think maybe even more important than sort of the um, hyper-explicit white supremacy mm. is the implicit white supremacy that we still see, the assumptions that we still lay on black bodies, the disposability, the assumed disposability of black life. And so I think that those assumptions are, are still with us in this quiet and, and dangerous way. So I know that Wells would, would, if she were here, would still be calling out um, that kind of violence that's going on on a daily basis. Right. Blair, thank you very much for joining us and I really appreciate your perspective. You're welcome. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Intersection is produced by Michaela LaFrac. We record at Argo Studios in New York, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our music is by Julian Ballard. If you have any thoughts or feedback on this episode or our show, we always love to hear from listeners. You can email us at podcast at newrepublic.com or find us on Twitter at IntersectionTNR or on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Jamil Smith. Check out the New Republic's new podcast hub, newrepublic.com slash podcasts. We're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much everywhere else you can download a podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe to our magazine's newest show, Grierson and Leach. You'll find a link to do that at iTunes or at that nifty podcast hub I just mentioned. Intersection will be back in your ears in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you.